Report on CITR 101.9 FM. We're broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus on the unceded, ancestral, and traditional Musqueam territory in Vancouver. I'm your host, Saira Unju, and we have a wonderfully packed show for you today. That sounded like I said chauffeur. Anyways, um, what do we have planned for you today? Uh, let me tell you really quick. We have an interview by Phoebe. Uh, afterwards, we have another interview by Dion. And then we have a review by Dion. And then after that, we have an interview by Lua. Uh, but before all of that, I am gonna do a shout out. So this week's shout out goes to Doors Open Richmond. Uh, what is this? <laughs> Let me tell you really quick. Uh, so Doors Open Richmond um, will be taking place June 5th to 12th, is taking visitors behind the scenes at some of the city's most iconic landmarks and institutions. Uh, original video content, photographs, and more will be published each day on the Richmond Museum social media channels and uploaded to the museum website's interactive map the following day. Participating partners will also be sharing content on their social media platforms so visitors can easily access the event by searching for the hashtag, hashtag doors open Richmond. Um, yes, uh, again, that is hashtag doors open Richmond. And it is a it's a great way for cabin fever crazed individuals to explore a different neighborhood, learn about the unique history of the city and break up the usual doom scrolling with the positive and inclusive content. Also, something important to mention is that this year's Doors Open program will include a video of smudging ceremony by the Con Connections Community Services Indigenous-led outreach and support program. And it's going to be a lovely video to be on the lookout for during the event week, which is again June 5th to 12th. So keep an eye out for Doors Open Richmond. Okay, so as I said, this week's show is pretty packed. So I'm just gonna go right into it. Uh, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna start. We're gonna do all of the jazz, the quick ad and PSA breaks. The reason I say quick is because they are really quick, not even one minute. And then... <laughs> Okay, maybe one minute. <laughs> and then I'm not gonna pop back in before or after um, Dion, Phoebe, or Lua. So I will meet you right back at the end. I hope you enjoy today's show. Yeah. Bye! Hello, everyone. This is Phoebe, and I have for you today an interview with the director and composer of a series called Yukon Harvest, which is currently streaming every Saturday. 
It is a 13-episode documentary series that centers on tradition, community, and connection to the land. It captures the stories of real people in an exploration and celebration of Indigenous culture and the sharing of knowledge and tradition among generations in between cultures. And with that intro, let's get into it. Hi, and good morning. I was wondering if first maybe we could get this started by having you um, introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, my name is Todd Forsbloom. Um, I uh, played, a, played a role in getting Yukon Harvest off the ground from kind of the, its early days, but I uh, uh, was a director on the show and wore, wore many hats to kind of get to where we are today. Okay. How would you describe Yukon Harvest? Because I, I didn't really, I've, I've watched a couple episodes and I really enjoyed them and I, I don't know what I expected going in, but I found it really like surprising. Um, how would you describe it to people who haven't seen it? Well, I, Yukon Harvest is, is about is a show about people, you know, and people with various backgrounds reconnecting to their roots, um, reconnecting with um, traditions and the land. So, you know, that that's if I could sum it up, that's that's really what it is. The word harvest is when we, you know, we go out and we harvest from the land, whether that's uh, an Alaskan bull moose or berries that that we pick um you know in the in our, around our area so the the fact that it was in the yukon was the the backdrop of it is on the yukon one of the most beautiful places on earth but it's this show is about people reconnecting with the land and traditions and and various things in their life that they hadn't done ever um just yeah. because of circumstance or or rekindled so i would say that's what it's about yeah, it seemed very beautifully intimate, I suppose. I like the way you put that. It's about people. Yeah. Um, how long were you filming for? We started rolling cameras back in 2012. Wow, if, so it's been a while. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you really want like the big picture, that's when we start, first started rolling the cameras for something that maybe we didn't even know what it was going to look like yet. It was really in the last three years that we had a vision and APTN was on board and, 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 you know, so we started filming in the Yukon specifically for APTN, but you'll notice that we have quite a bit of footage of Donnie yeah. five or six years ago, because I met Donnie in 2012 in the, in the mountains of BC and um, start, we started filming Donnie and documenting his life um, because the guy I work with, Jim Shockey, is a very, Big outdoorsman um, made may has made many TV series in the wildlands, and and him and I and Donnie, we knew this would be something one day, so we just started filming as much as we could, and I'm sure I'm sure glad we got that because, you know, terrible sad to say Donnie passed away within four months of us getting the green light. Ah, oh, what a shame. Yeah, so it's been going on a you know this has been a big project we knew it would be about people and we knew it would be about passing on knowledge yeah um, that was very important to donnie and and um so we knew we knew that that's what it would be about we didn't know how big or how big the scope would be it it it, it transformed to to what you see now right i'm kind of curious is, is that what inspired the series the dream of passing on knowledge or was there anything else that inspired it 
I would say that inspired it. I would say the, the, the concept of giving our knowledge to other people while we can. Yeah. And, and, and that was a big thing for Donnie. Um, it's a big thing for, for Jim Shockey. Um, you know what? I'm a father. I have, I have a 17 year old and a, an 11 year old and I take them both out into the land. We go hunting every year. We fish, we crab, and I'm teaching my boys these things and getting them off of the TV and off of the screens. It's a tough world to compete with these days for kids attention. So yeah. I, I think that's the, that's the overarching um, at the root of it is, is wanting to teach that knowledge to other people. Cause as you watch the series, you're going to see the student or, or the person who's learning, but you also are going to see the teacher yeah. and their relationship. And um, so there's really two sides to this these episodes those who have the knowledge and those who want it want the knowledge and want to learn that's 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 it at its root yeah absolutely was it difficult um feeling so i don't know so involved and then also at the end having to make this product where you have to cut everything down was was that challenging to do i would i would say not really and i'll tell you why and i just came together naturally it did and 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 you know I love the three-hour version of my favorite movie as much as the next person, but I think I think we have to be realistic and say, you know, we told the story in 23 minutes or however long a half an hour episode is, you know, and you know we we chose the best moments mm. and and we do, we're showing that to people and we're proud of of what people are seeing and yeah there was lots that happened that that we we didn't necessarily be able to fit in but it was never one of those moments where. Where I tell you what, if there was enough, we'd made we made two episodes or three out of okay. the one person. So we some of them have more than one because that's what happened. We wanted we wanted everyone to see everything that we that we could show that you know that was that would reach the heart you know. So but I didn't struggle with it. It was like I saw my brother's episode. It was one episode, and I was like, perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, I I knew there was things we couldn't we didn't show, but it didn't matter because the message got out there, right? And in this business, you have to know when, you know, you can't stew over every little thing because you'll go crazy. You have to, you have to pick a representation of, of what happened. And, and I feel we did that in all 13. Yeah, well, congratulations for doing that. It sounds like you know what you're doing a little bit as well. Um, it's been a long road. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I kind of, I can't actually, I can't imagine. That's, it's incredible to even think about it. I suppose we should, Talk about how people can watch this. Yeah, for sure. So, so on APTN, it airs on it airs on every Saturday for the next twelve weeks, and APTN uh, comes with um, basic cable and up. So I, 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 and 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 if you don't have cable, Lumi is an online um, way to access all of the APTN shows. And you you can pay a per month, and it, I I tell people it's kind of like Netflix for APT. Mm. You can go there, and 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 you can harvest will be on there if you don't have cable, and uh, that's the two places we that people can see it for now. And it, is it it's airing in two languages, I believe, as well at yeah. different times, right? Yeah, it airs in Northern Toshoni, which which was uh, a, a massive undertaking as well, <laughs> but well worth the effort. We got to know a lot of really interesting elders because they're the only ones that speak the northern Toshone language right yeah it's great that you made that happen like it must have taken a while to translate well and then covid came 
and 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 we couldn't go near the the elder we couldn't be in the room with them and and we tried different things to make it work and we finally found a way that worked where everybody would be safe it, it involved an elder and one of the local community members at a distance with an iphone basically and wow and and we they went through it line by line and um i listened with my headphones because that job was my job and another guy here to to do and i listened to all the elders talk and by the end of it i was speaking northern to shoni when i got home i would say things to my wife and in and it would started to go into my day-to-day work like yes and and mm. and hello we were having a, a laugh how how you get so drawn in by this language it's it's uh it was a really cool experience and we really we really tried to find people that everyone can connect with right so we have our youngest our youngest cast member was evan he's 12 and you know we had we had one of the um one of the one of the ladies in the show her her grandma went hunting with her and she's in her late 80s so so we we try to really make the um cast a, a a wide spectrum so that everybody could connect right so when my when my nine-year-old watched episode five with evan the 12 year old he was glued yeah. and i showed it to him as a rough cut and <laughs> and he was like he just glued and and at the end he was he was like can i get my hunting license because because evan had gone hunting and i and i said to my son i said yeah, absolutely if you want i didn't know you were you were interested in that right now i thought a couple of years he's like no i want to do it so he got his hunting license the same within about three months and started hunting with me last year so that episode sparked a uh, uh, something in him and that's kind of what i'm hope we're all hoping will happen across canada is that it might spark some some individuals to go you know i'm gonna go and i'm gonna i want to learn this i want to i want to reconnect as well you know i'm gonna call up my uncle who hunts or i'm gonna call up my friend who hunts who who and i'm gonna I'm going to try to get involved more with, with doing things and, you know, outside that, that would be an amazing thing if we, if we could spark that, you know, in people and, and also to those that have the knowledge to say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to reach out to, you know, that, 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 that kid who's, 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 who doesn't have the chance. I'm going to take that, you know, kid hunting, COVID friendly world, of course, but like, I'm kind of hoping it'll, it'll spark some, some, some uh, interest in, in getting outside again. And I don't think it matters what, who we are, what our background is, that can be a good thing, right? Absolutely. You're trying to inspire connections and rekindle communication. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of what we're hoping will, will, will come, will come from it is that it will, it will affect some some more interest in, in, in getting outside and especially in a world that is generally wants us to stay inside. Right. Yeah. We live in a world that there's, there's, it's, there's more to do inside than outside. It seems, especially for a young kid. And, uh, you know, I, when I, when we, you know, I don't know how old you are. I'm 49. When I was a kid, it was like, get inside for dinner. Now it's like, get outside and tell dinner. Right. It's, yeah it's changed. So I'm hoping that this might remind people of how things were. We were always outside. Let's go outside again. Yeah. That's a beautiful goal. I hope so. I really hope that happens and I'm sure it can. So to, to re-clarify, people can watch this by turning on their TV on Saturdays. Yeah. 
every Saturday evening for the next 12 weeks and people have to check their local listing, go to their PVR and look and see because it's, it's 5 p.m. BC timer or Pacific time. I know that for sure. Okay, great. So, so I check your local listing though. That, that would be, for some people, it varies, depends on where they are in Canada. But it is that, it is Saturday night evenings for sure. Okay, thank you. And that's it. Thanks again so much to Todd Forsboom for having a chat with me. Um, and Yukon Harvest has an Instagram page, so if you have any feedback, they would love to hear it. That's just at Yukon Harvest. And yeah, thank you so much for listening. Enjoy your day. Bye. Red Cap Records is an amazing artist-owned and operated record store. Shop from their diverse online music collection and get free shipping within Vancouver and the Lower Mainland with the purchase of two or more LPs. If you would like to further support them through the evolving COVID-19 crisis, you can do so by buying a gift card to use at a later date. Visit www.redcat.ca for more information. Who we view as the most authoritative and electable is rooted in systems of oppression. There are so many inequities around having our experts in our community speak about our work. Obviously there are several facets to this strangely homogenous nature of the electoral system. And to be left out conversations, it only exemplifies that loss of self-esteem. Check out CITR's live panel podcast, Conversations, hosted by our Indigenous, Accessibility, and Gender Empowerment Collectives. Subscribe to Conversations, available now on iTunes. Hello everyone, this is Dion. Um, I literally just finished watching the movie like five minutes ago. Um, the documentary name is called His Name is Ray, directed, filmed, and edited by M Michael Del Monte. And it's a documentary following uh, a homeless man named Ray Martin around the streets of Toronto and navigating homelessness and also drug addiction. And the documentary was a very visceral experience, and it was so, I mean, obviously this is my immediate reaction, but I just want to say it was really good. And in fact, I was originally only going to do a review of the movie, but after watching the movie, I've actually um, reached out and uh, <laughs> I wanted to do an interview with the filmmaker because it was really powerful. And it just drops you right in the middle of his life. And it's very hard to watch sometimes, especially the scenes where Ray shoots up heroin and fentanyl at times. I think it really changed um, my perspective about homelessness. Not necessarily changed, but it gave such a human face to it and like... Everyone, if you have the chance to, I would really recommend you watch this documentary. Not only was the cinematography actually like super good, and it was filmed in a way that even though you're just, you know, going through the daily life of this homeless man, it was very cinematic at times, and the, the score was really 
dramatic and it just it was really intense and there was this one particular scene that was that I thought just was really powerful where Ray was just sitting outside a Starbucks um, drinking out of a you know plastic water bottle and he's like filmed right on the center of the screen his full body shot just sitting there you know, he's just talking to the, the camera and I don't know it just kind of took me it took me it took me somewhere it was like uh, humans of New York ex Wes Anderson kind of vibe like it was executed really well the cinematography was beautiful the sound mixing was actually super good um yeah the f- film score was was really it really put me on the edge which is what it was supposed to do and the color grading too was like accentuated the message that they were trying to tell there there were just so many tiny moments in the movie where you just you feel like you're in there with Ray with in his life you know and speaking honestly like you know growing up my family had certain stigma towards homeless people and every time when we drove past uh for example like Vancouver's downtown east side my mom would always lock the door and you know avoid eye contact with anyone who tries to come up to her car window and in this movie Ray regularly panhandles at one of Toronto's busiest intersections and there was there was a dialogue between him and one of his friends they were complaining about how people you know see them and they just lock their doors and don't talk to them and it just a lot of the ideas that we have about homelessness and about drug addiction in Canada are coming from a place of misunderstanding and you know, if you've ever walked past a homeless person, I think you should give this documentary a try. It's a, it's a tough film to watch for sure, but I'm so glad that I watched it, and I'm really uh, grateful to the filmmaker for for filming this documentary. I mean, for me, a good piece of media is defined by how much it changed like my perspective about the world after consuming it and after watching his name is Ray I definitely feel like I'll think back on this documentary for days to come I wouldn't say it made me grateful for my own life as much as it did made me empathetic to Ray's situation which I think is a more powerful result (laughs) There's not really a way for me to describe how I feel about this movie without sounding like your stereotypical charity slogan person. So I think I'll just highly recommend that you watch this documentary for yourself and to see the reality of homelessness, but also the humanity of it. I would almost even say that like, I'm sure the process of filming this this uh, documentary with Ray was <laughs> deserves probably another documentary itself. Throughout the movie, I also found myself wondering what was the filming process like. 
which is why、uh, I actually reached out for an interview. So coming up next is my interview with Michael Del Monte, the director behind His Name Is Ray. Hi, how's it going? Not bad. Thanks for doing this. Well, thank you so much for joining me because、wow. I was really moved by the documentary. I was originally only going to do like a review of it, but after I watched it, I was like, I gotta talk to this guy.、Oh, amazing! Thank you <laughs> so much for watching it. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. I just want to start by asking, like,、um, you know, the documentary was conceived because you got out of the car and you started talking to Ray.、Mm. But I was wondering, what was it that made you get out of the car in the first place? Because not everybody. Good question.、That. I was wondering if someone asked. It was, it was Ray's. He's as you see in the film, he panhandles so close to the water, and、um, I I saw him one day driving home, and like I said, I just he's a guy that so many people have in their life where you just keep driving by, you walk by, you see them. They've kind of staked out their place in the world where they're, you know,、uh, living and. For such a long time, it was it was just kind of like let me I just let me get by. Sometimes you know, sometimes I'd acknowledge, but it just was this existence. I I, I kind of wanted to pretend wasn't there. And one day, he Lake Ontario is kind of right in the backdrop of where he is, and you, there's a sailing club there, and you can often see the sailboats and the sunsets in the west. And it was this this picturesque shot of Ray crouched down over the sewer grate. Counting his change,、mm-hmm. and and in that moment, I just I saw Ray as this person who, despite all my preconceptions of who I thought he was, or maybe choices he had made in his life, or whatever I had been thinking, I saw him existing in the same world I did, in this kind of beautiful setting,、um, this picturesque spot that to me represented like both kind of like heaven. And hell, in a way, yeah, yeah. you know, and it was all right there, and it just made me look at him differently. And and so, the next day, yeah, I just I asked my wife to to drop me off, and and you know, I didn't have my camera with me at the time, but that's when we started talking, and he was amazing. You know, it wasn't who I thought he'd be,、um, and the rest is history. Oh yeah. wow, yeah, that's really beautiful, and that's actually the poster of the movie, that, isn't it? That's the poster. I mean that that was that was the poster, and. You know that shot was just so iconic to me. Like、mm-hmm. it's it it, it it we had to Photoshop the poster slightly be, just because of the vantage point. But it's just he's still there. Like he's still he's still two hundred meters from the water. Like to this day, it's just where there's no it's not a coincidence that he's positioned himself so close to his dream. And I I、mm-hmm. thought that that was just you know an amazing metaphor for for everyone. Yeah. You know that that you're you have a dream within sight, but choices you make or whatever your circumstances have been in life can often keep you from that thing that's so close. Yeah, yeah. How much did you understand about homelessness and drug addiction before filming? Because for me, just watching it, like it completely changed the way I see these issues. Yeah. So I would assume, as a filmmaker, following Ray for、yeah. eight months. Yeah. What was yeah. that like? It it was hard,、um, emotionally very hard. I you know I spent I I grew up out of the city. I grew up in Guelph, Ontario, but、mm-hmm. I I spent the last ten years plus in you know the downtown core. So I'd I'd seen a lot of it. I, I was a little familiar, I guess, working in some shelters a few times when I was younger. But for the most part,、um, no. I we I've been talked about this a lot, but we had some f- 
some family members who lost their lives from drugs. And I was a bit too young to understand kind of the context around that. And I think deep down that always sort of inspired me or pushed me to try to understand how a substance can take everything from someone. It can, it can make you want to, you know, lose your family, your yeah. job, your even life, you know, like you're what, you know, you like with fentanyl now, like, you know, there's a high probability you can die from this, but you'll still take it three, four five times a day. So I think I was, I didn't have any scientific understanding or, or anything like that. Just some anecdotal stories in my life of people who had lost their lives and kind of wanting to understand how this substance could have such a grip on a human. Yeah. How do you balance? Because sometimes when I'm watching the movie, I'm just thinking like, how did you like manage to film this? Like, because how do you balance being an yeah. observer and just sitting back yeah. and letting things happen, but also like getting the shots that you want and getting the cinematic effect that you want? The, fir the first time I was very nervous, like it right. and it came out of nowhere. Ray was Ray's, Ray's dealer, he owed his dealer some money and he was trying to avoid him. And so we were kind of wandering the streets and he's like, let's, let's just go down here real quick. And he said something like, I'm sure you can guess what I'm going to go do. And I, and I didn't really know. I, I, I was like, uh, I thought maybe he meant like I'm going to the bathroom or something he goes, yeah, I got to go do a hit. And I said, Oh, do you want, do you, do you want me to film? Like, should I film this? It was weird. Cause I didn't, I, you know, I, Ray, Ray, when I first met him, I thought he was kind of just a homeless guy who was just kind of on the down and out. Like he was, he was going to get back on the water. Like he told me he was once a sailor and had lost everything. And so you wouldn't know that drugs ran his life. You know, he was so, he was very clear and, and very, you know, had great opinions and articulate and all that. So yeah, when he told me I'm going to do a hit and he's like, no, film it. This is, this is my, I mean, this runs my life. It's, it's good for people to see this. It, it was very nerve wracking because I mm -hmm. had never been in that proximity to such a hard drug. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's not, it wasn't a sterile environment. Like it's kind of, you know, there's garbage and yeah. you're on the streets and all that. And it, uh, it, and it never got more comfortable it was repetitive, you know, you do it sometimes on days I was filming with them several times in a day, but it never, it never became uh, comfortable or I don't know. It, it always felt, it was always nervous because people, his friends and people were dying on the streets. Yeah. So every time you're doing it, you're like, but he, you know, he walked me through how to revive him with the Narcan and I, I would carry a pouch with me uh, while filming just in case. Um, but yeah, you're gambling with your life every time. It's very nerve wracking. Especially in a situation like that, there's such a fine line between honoring someone's like reality, but also like, how do you manipulate it to fit your creative vision as a filmmaker? Because there were some shots in there that I could tell was like intense, like when it was really intense, you do like extreme close-ups or like you do like a faux shot. How do you control those things while it's still being like a reality? I... Yeah, I, I was, first off, I was the only one there. So mm -hmm. I didn't have to talk to a cameraman or a camera woman to say like, it was all so immediate. Like it was just Ray and I, and Ray was totally comfortable with me. And, and for me, there was a choice as I was contemplating the whole filmmaking process that if we're going to do this, like, 
we're going to do this. Like we're going to, we're, we're going to see it. Like we're not going to, we're not going to over sensationalize it, but we're not going to steer away from it. And, you know, I, I, I just found those, yeah, those tight shots every time you would take this little, you know, synthetic rock, or if it was heroin, mm -hmm. you know, whatever it was and, and crush it in and twirl it in the, like it was, it was this little thing that was ruining his life, you know, and, and I thought it was important just to make sure we understood the magnitude of this, you know, this little substance and what it, and what it can do and, and how it can, you know, keep you from your, your life and your dreams. So it was just um, a real conscious effort to make sure we were capturing the full extent of this. Did you have to convince Ray and the other subjects in the movie to behave naturally in front of a camera? Because a lot of people have difficulty yeah. doing that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I talked to Ray early on, like when Ray, Ray invited, the way this all started was Ray sort of invited me to follow him on a, like a day on the street. Mm -hmm. and, and the first day we went out to film, you know, his, his dealer had trashed his tent. And I, I said, is this what life is like? And he's like, every day, every day is like this. And so it was, it was at that point where I was like, okay, maybe there's a, something longer here because there's just struggle and drama and conflict every day, obstacles to try to achieve your goal. Um, but Ray from day one was an incredible subject. He just, you know, I, I, I could not have made this film with anyone else. Like he, he wrote the film. I mean, his, the way he speaks, he's so articulate again, his opinions, he's, his observations, he's got this, you can just see if drugs hadn't, if things had gone differently, he would have had a whole different life, but he was very natural all the time. And it was, I didn't have to direct the other people in the film. Ray did for me every time. Oh. Every time we come up, like you saw in the film, there's so many different characters, all of yeah. his, all of his friends, like they're just, you know, he bumps into someone and there's a different person almost in every scene and you never see the same person twice. Yeah. And it was like life on the streets. It's just like people, you know, they come in and out of your world. And so whenever someone would come up, Ray would be like, oh, he's, he's just doing a documentary. Just pretend he's not here. Just talk to me. So, so what's going on? I haven't seen you in a while. And, and he would oh. just take over. Oh, and, wow. Uh, they, they would some often often they would ask me like what's you know what are you doing with the film and and things like that but no everyone we we met was was incredible they were all I think they all saw that I I was there for a long time like I wasn't in and out like you know I was there on the streets quite a bit and uh you know they knew what I was trying to make to try to bring empathy and show the audience that despite these differences of whether you live in a house or a tent or ride a bike or a car there's still that shared human experience of having hopes and dreams and and uh you know i think that was their appreciation and willingness to be involved can you walk me through like an average day of filming uh, would you <laughs> plan anything beforehand would you no. on a storyboard or anything no. like that no it was unlike you know the previous film i did transformer mm -hmm. You know, we we had a crew and we would talk to the character because the character lived four or five hours away. So I'd, I'd have to talk with her and be like, you know, we're coming for three days. You know, what are we going to be doing and kind of set up our scenes a little bit? Not with this at all. Ray lived only about 10 minutes from my house. Mm -hmm. And so I would either have my wife drop me off um, or I'd take an Uber and I would or walk and I would try to find them and probably for every time I found him, 
there'd be at least two or three times I wouldn't find him. And I'd go home and my wife would be like, how did filming go? And I said, I didn't find him today. And, you know, we'll try again tomorrow. But the days I found him, there was always an adventure. That's partly due to life on the streets in general, but also it says a lot about Ray. Like Ray, he's the kind of, per he was a sailor, right? Like yeah. he's always, you know, he's always on the move. Like he's always trying to find new tents. He's always getting into trouble. Like, you know, his buddy's stealing his jacket and then he's got to go find it. And, you know, his, his dealer's looking for him. So he's got to, he's got to panhandle at a Starbucks instead of at his usual intersection. Yeah. And so there was just, there was always this feeling like as if it was a script that was being written by Ray and I would show up and he'd be, and he'd have the drama already planned for that day. Every day I filmed with him, something happened. You know, and and uh, I'd show up. First thing I would do would be put a microphone on him, his lav mic. He, yeah. he got very used to it. And uh, <laughs> and I mean, as you've seen in the film, it's it's very like Italian neorealism, classic, you know, cinema verite. Yeah, like yeah. I, I didn't I barely talked, you know, yeah. every, every, every yeah. now and then I would maybe ask him a couple things. But it was it was just being with him and being immersed on what it's like instead of being the one driving by. Yeah. That was the whole goal was, yeah, to get the audience out of their car and have them just sit there, walk and panhandle and, and see what life is like. Yeah, my favorite scene in the documentary was definitely actually like the shot in front of the Starbucks and he's just <laughs> sitting there and the, there's a bird that hops by. Oh, you saw it. Yeah, and that was, I don't know, I don't know why, but it just hit different, you know? It reminded me of like humans of New York and like- Absolutely. Well, there's West. an evolution. I mean, my co-writer yeah. Scott, my co-writer Scott Montgomery. I, I came at this from much more of a philosophical, existential perspective of mm -hmm. common human experiences we share. You know, at an existential level, my co-writer Scott came at it from more of an evolutionary perspective. As you know, humans find different places to occupy. That you know, you fight for your existence. You'll you'll find ways to make money. You'll find ways to to get food. And, and the bird in that shot, you know, it's funny, Ray's panhandling and then the bird's panhandling from Ray. I know. Yeah. And, it, yeah. and, it, and, it, and I'm glad you saw it. There's a couple birds. We, we did that a couple times in the films with the birds kind of scrounging. And that's and the thing is, the cars are doing that, too. The ones who are driving by, they're on their mm -hmm. way to work to make money and then they're going home. And so there's this there's this entire world that you just see the different layers of existence. But everyone's trying to survive. Yeah. I mean, if you had so much um, material, like eight months of filming and every day you said was an adventure, yeah. how do you manage to edit it down to an hour and 30 minutes? Oh, it was, there's a four hour ver. the first rough cut Scott oh I did is about four hours. And I still, partly to this day, I sort of wish we released it because it, it's, it might even be better in that you'll, you really see the pacing of this life. Mm -hmm. you know, like that you just sit for hours at the intersection and then you go get a hit and then you go like it's there's something fascinating about experience it at more of a slower pace. But ultimately, we had to create some type of almost a conventional story arc of Ray trying to get back on the boat in our in our early rough cut. It was less about that and more just about the real experiences you have on the street. Mm -hmm. But as we started kind of showing it to different colleagues and some festival programmers, the feedback 
was that it needed some more shaping to it. And that, that really influenced our decision on how we edited it down just to, we still wanted it to feel different than conventional talking head type of documentaries that we're used to these days, almost, yeah. you know, we still wanted it to be an experience, but the choices we were making to trim it down, we're trying to make it a, a more cohesive viewing experience or a more chronological almost like just give us a little bit more of a beginning and end. I mean, the, the influence on this film was, was the Florida project. Oh uh, yeah. I remember, I mean that cinematically, I mean, it was Florida project meets like, you know, tree of life or, but Florida project, I just, Sean Baker for me has always been a filmmaker that I've admired at how he can keep your attention for two hours with very little plot development. It's all about getting to know this person and getting these glimpses and experiences of these worlds you never would otherwise. Yeah. I remember watching Florida Project and, you know, being a couple hours or almost to the end and just saying, I, I, I'm so mad this is over. I could I could watch 10 hours of this. Yeah. And so that was very influential. Well, how's Ray doing these days? Are you staying in touch with him? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm out of Guelph now just because of COVID. We moved out of the city into the suburbs because we have a two-year-old. Um, but I, I catch up with Ray when I can, when I'm back in the city. And he's he's doing okay. He uh, he got COVID, but ended up being fine. Uh, he, he recovered from it. He's moved his tent within inches of the water. He's like right beside Lake Ontario. But he's still, you know, he's still... Right. It's hard for me to even say he's battling his addiction. I, you know, there's, there's everyone on the street has such a different story. I ask him this quite a bit because we did a Q and A for hot docs. And mm -hmm. I just, I asked like, are you, people are going to want to know, are you trying to get off or are you trying to change? And he's, he's, he's kind of comfortable, you know, it, it's sad in a way because you, you see that so much potential and talent has kind of gone astray, but he, he manages, he knows his life is going to be drastically shortened, but he's kind of come to terms with that. And that's, that's hard. That's very, that's very hard. Yeah. Right. Before we leave, I just, I want to ask you like the overdose crisis is, is continuing to happen all over Canada and it's, it's taking lives every single day. Yeah. And you said that, you know, Ray is like a very unique subject of his own, but the, the issue that he's dealing with yeah. is a very universal problem 100%. in North America. Coming out of making this film, do you think you have, you've realized anything about um, the overdose crisis that a lot of people may misunderstand? You know, truthfully, the thing I took away and that I hope people take away is that it's not just a bunch of statistics, but that every one of those statistics, each one of those people still has a name. And, and honestly, I think that is a pretty significant takeaway for myself, mm -hmm. being the person who drove by for years. They're, they're still human. They're still worth fighting for. The solution isn't easy or else we would have found one by now. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not an activist. Like I'm a filmmaker just trying to find stories where there's shared human experiences, despite what side of the tracks you live on. And, um, I don't have, yeah, I, I, I knew early on that we weren't going to be able to present any easy answers to this mm -hmm. problem until someone 
finds a solution. If there, maybe there isn't, a, I don't know, but I, I, I hope at least we can approach it with empathy. And if, if people watch the film and ask the name of the next person they walk by and try yeah. to understand their story, yeah. maybe that's, maybe that's a good way for us to start coexisting. I don't know. Yeah, I think I think your film would definitely help because it definitely helped me see it differently. So thank you so much again for talking to me, but also thank you so much for um, just showing the humanity behind Ray. And thank you for watching. Thanks for the you had great questions. I, I really enjoyed it. That was my interview with Michael Del Monte, the director behind His Name is Ray. You can stream this fantastic documentary now at hotdocs.ca. Available until June 24th. Thanks for your attention. This is Dion Fang. Discorder Magazine has been supporting local music for over 30 years. Thanks to the long-term support of the Rickshaw Theater, Discorder lives. favorite bands are playing at the Rickshaw Theater, check out their calendar just behind the cover of Discorder Magazine or at rickshawtheater.com. Now the patriarchy is dead, and we killed it. If you identify as a woman, femme, trans, or non-binary, CITR wants you on the air. You can talk about literally whatever you want as long as you care about it. No worries if you have no experience, we'll train you in everything you need to know. Come by CITR and say hi. Hey, hi, hello. From 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. Monday to Friday to help us never play Led Zeppelin on CITR 101.9 FM ever again. Hello everyone, this is Lil Prezijo and after a year break I am finally back and with more energy than ever. I'm so happy to be talking to you today and to be sharing the beautiful exhibit to speak with a golden voice that is happening at the Bill Reed Gallery of Northwest Coast Art and has been extended until September of this year. Last week I talked to their curator Bath Carter about some of the works in display and their significance and here is the interview. Hello Beth, how are you today? I'm doing great. It's such a gorgeous day. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for taking your time to do this interview with me. And thank you again for welcoming me into the gallery. It was such a beautiful space and I really think everyone should go check it out. And so to start this interview, I'd love if you could um, explain a little bit about the exhibits that is going on right now. Um, and it's going on right now until September 6th to speak with a golden voice. And I know that the exhibit honors the life and legacy of Bill Reed and walking through it honestly felt like this beautiful tribute to uh, Bill Reed. But I wanted to ask you, first and foremost, who is Bill Reed? And in your opinion, why is he relevant today? And why is the gallery dedicated to him right now? Always a great place to start. So Bill Reed is one of our most famous Indigenous artists in Canada. He was born in 1920 and he sadly passed away of uh, 
1998. Um, and friends and family, after he passed away, decided that they wanted to preserve his legacy through the creation of a gallery. Uh, it took about 10 years to make that possible, and the gallery opened in 2008 in our current location in downtown Vancouver. The space is beautiful. It's a lovely little jewel box, and I like to call it that because so much of Bill Reed's work that he's is beautiful jewelry that he created. And that's how he got started as an artist, as a jeweler in 1948. So at the age of 28, uh, he was born in 1920 in Victoria. And he didn't really know about his Haida ancestry at that time. He is a person who grew up with a mother who had been in residential school. And really she decided to protect her children and also to live a non-Indigenous life because she had married a non-Indigenous man and had three children with him. So Bill Reed, uh, through his early years, was a very creative guy. He um, was always doodling and interested in art and he didn't really do that well at school but was curious about the world. And he became a radio announcer uh, and through that, working at the CBC, he moved to Toronto and he had an opportunity there to take some jewelry goldsmithing courses. And that led to his career. He then diversified over the years and also engaged with his Haida ancestry and it brought his Haida art back into prominence with his own contemporary art. So why we think of Bill Reed as such an interesting and important person in uh, Canadian art history has to do a lot with him bridging the time he lived in. So he was born in 1920. He became a, a flourishing artist in the late 40s, 50s, 60s. And this was a time of great transition for Indigenous people in Canada. And he was, uh, he was had that unique eye to be able to look at ancient Haida art and also be able to trans transfer it into contemporary art. So he learned by copying old designs and maybe they were wood in wood or rattles or tattoo designs and he transferred them into jewelry and later into carvings, prints and monumental works. So Bill Reed, because he had born up, born, was born and grew, grew up outside of his indigenous heritage, he had a real comfort level, both in the non-native world, and then he learned so much and became accepted also into the native world. And he, we often talk about him building bridges and straddling these two worlds and helping to bring them closer together. It's, it's a lot to talk about in a short interview, but the <laughs> Indigenous history of art in the middle of the 20th century, it never went away, the beautiful art forms, but it definitely was repressed and it was pushed underground and it was not encouraged because art, traditional art of the Northwest Coast is connected to ceremony mm -hmm. and the clan systems and all of the things that were, um, damaged through the residential schools and the colonial system. So Bill came in at a time with his great curiosity and his amazing skill as an artist and helped 
the community move past that hurdle and get into uh, where the flourishing of Indigenous art is today. So mm -hmm. for those reasons, he's, he's not the only artist who did that, but he was a very important artist at that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, it's a fascinating his, history. And walking through the exhibit, my first thought, and I think one of the things that I took away from it was that as I walked through it, I was like, wow, this, this man was loved. Uh, yes, he was very loved and he he was a very interesting person. He was very gregarious um, and outgoing in many ways. He was also a scholar because he he loved to read and do poetry and you know, he was kind of a Renaissance man. <laughs> One of the earliest pieces we have in the gallery is this absolutely charming, miniature tea set that he made as a gift for his sister and it's actually made out of blackboard chalk it's only about a centimeter tall and it it's incredible he made it when he was 12 years old and i always look at that piece and speak about it as an indication of his creative spirit from a very young age Mm -hmm. And so this exhibit, it's not just about his work, it also has an audio component and a video component. So does the title to speak with a golden voice also relate to this audio component of the exhibit? The title is multi-layered. So mm -hmm. this exhibition is really to celebrate Bill Reed's 100th birthday. He was born in 1920 and we opened the exhibition last summer in July of uh, 2020. And of course, we all know that COVID put a bit of a hinge in our plans uh, last year. So we have ex uh, extended the show because uh, it ha it's had a bit of a slow start. So we do invite people to come and see uh, these amazing works. The show, I worked with a guest curator, Gwai Edenshaw. Gwai is Haida and is an amazing artist, filmmaker uh, himself. And he was one of, he was Bill's last apprentice. Mm -hmm. So he knew Bill very, very well. And I am not indigenous. So I work for on every exhibition at the gallery. We work with an indigenous guest curator who has specialist knowledge on the theme and subject or the artists uh, involved. And so Guai worked with me and we talked a lot about what was special about Bill and how could we uh, share that with the public. And we decided that he was, the, the title is to speak with a golden voice because he was known as a radio announcer. And then he was later received the name, the Haida traditional name, golden voice, um, as one of the three Haida names he was gifted over the years. And then he also had, we think about his voice carrying on and resonating into the future and because we want to talk a lot about his legacy, how he had so much to, say and share with people and that uh, all the many people he worked with and the young artists he encouraged and also how his his work is is as important today as it ever was uh, 50 years ago so this uh, multi-layered title and we also liked the idea of the activity of it so it's not just a static object but bill was a very dynamic complex human being who meant many things to many different people. So we've filled the exhibition with 
uh, short quotations by friends, families, colleagues, all speaking about him from their own perspective. So I think when you come through the exhibition, along with his amazing artwork, you also get a sense of him as a person. That the, the audio component, which is a um, commission from Indigenous artist Kinney Starr, who worked with Guai uh, to create this audio component that Guai wanted something that would be like Bill whispering over your shoulder as you traveled through the exhibition. So you hear his voice at five different stations as you go through the show and you it's almost unintelligible. There's just key words that pop out but uh, they're important and you get this sense that he's there in the room with you and that's the purpose of the audio in the gallery. And so the exhibit is not just about Bill's work in of itself as about him as a person, but it also has contemporary works by new artists that might not have ever met Bill, but have been influenced by his work. And so could you talk a little bit more about that, about those contemporary works that are present in the exhibit? So the contemporary works, there's two forms of contemporary works. There's uh, works by artists who did work closely with Bill, who he had a long association with, such as James Hart, Robert Davidson, uh, and many others. And George Rammel is another one who is a non-Indigenous artist, but who worked very closely with Bill on some of his monumental works. And then we did commission two pieces for, for the show. The first was the sound piece from Kinney Starr, and the second was from a young uh, artist from Haida Gwaii. Her name is Corey Sabard. I was interested in having a female artist included in the show to talk about how women are taking on carving and painting and traditional arts in, on the Northwest Coast. And then she came up with a very interesting uh, discussion around the idea of identity. So Bill Reed really had a hard time with his identity through the years. And that was a, a discussion that Guai and I had a lot and Guai brings out in the exhibition how Bill at first, you know, felt quite remote from his Haida ancestry. And then through time, as he became closer and did more projects with the Haida people, he really embraced his Haida background. Mm -hmm. So Corey, in a similar way, she grew up away from Haida Guai. Her family lived in the Ottawa area as she was young in until she was in her late teens. Yet, instead of restricting her access to the Haida uh, history, her mother made sure that she and her brother knew about it. She took them to the National Museum on a regular basis and, and saw Bill Reed's works and saw the ancient works that are held in that museum. And that gave Corey, a real strong sense of identity with her Haida ancestry. And then since then, she's moved back to Haida Gwaii and has trained and apprenticed with Reg Davidson, Robert Davidson, Ben Davidson, lots of Davidsons and uh, other people. And she's now an amazing artist in her own right. And she created a work that was a, a painting based on a, a bracelet design that shows that idea of connecting to ancestry through the dogfish, which is her mother's clan 
name. And uh, so it shows her and her brother and the dogfish woman and talking about her connections to her own personal identity. It's a beautiful piece done in a very traditional Haida style, but telling a very deep story that also relates to her connection to Bill. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I, I love that that is an inclusion in the show. And so with the extension, it's the exhibit was originally supposed to end in April 11th, but uh, it's going to be extended to September 6th. There have been two pieces that are going to be added to the exhibit so that even people that have already seen it can come in again and see these new pieces. Um, could you talk a little bit more about these new pieces? Absolutely. So the first piece is uh, is a pole. It's an eight foot pole by Reg Davidson. Uh, it has recently been gifted to the gallery uh, from a longtime supporter of the gallery who commissioned this work in 1980. So it's about 40 years old and it will be on our outdoor patio. It is a uh, an eagle and a beaver design on the pole. It's beautifully carved. And so that will be, we had hoped to already have them installed, but they will be installed now at the in the last week of May. Um, and then the second piece is uh, a, a magnificent door that Bill Reed designed and his uh, James Hart, Chief Idansu James Hart, carved in also in 1980. And this was um, uh, telling the story of Nana Simgit, uh, who, which is an, a very well-known Haida story that Bill learned at an early age and incorporated into many of his works through the years. It tells the story of Nana Simgit a man, a Haida man whose wife was stolen by a supernatural killer whale. And he goes off on an epic journey to re uh, rescue her. So it's a, it's a highly unusual design that Bill made because he was fitting it into the vertical shape of a door. The door is 10 feet tall. So it comes actually in two sections and it, it James Hart did a just beautiful job with the carving. And then what's even more special is it has a Bill Reed bare uh, head doorknob on the front of the door as well. So that will be installed on in the last week of May in the gallery as well. So we're very excited to have these two works uh, coming into the show um, for the extension. Yeah, that's great to hear. Um, I, I hope people take a look at it and are interested in more of this history and the beautiful art that is present in the gallery. And that was Beth Carter, the curator of the Bill Reed Gallery in downtown Vancouver. I hope you enjoy that. And in addition to having this amazing exhibit happening, uh, they have their, the Bill Reed Gallery is also hosting a number of online events and they're launching a book together with their exhibit. So check those out if you're interested and I hope you had a great time listening to this interview. Bye bye now. And folks, that brings us to the end of the show. Um, I really, really, really hope you liked this week's episode. There were a lot of interviews, which is just amazing because we get to talk to the people. We got to talk to artists about their art, which is always, always wonderful. I really hope you enjoyed today's show. I really hope you will tune in for the next one, which will be not next week, but the week after that, because we're doing bi-weekly shows and not weekly shows, which feels really weird, not gonna lie. 
but it's fine. <laughs> it's okay. We're going to be back to weekly shows in winter and you can listen to our previous episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or CITR.ca and you can find us on social media. We're Arts Report CITR on Instagram, CITR underscore Arts Report on Twitter and Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM on Facebook. Uh, come hang out with us. Yeah. Again, I really, really hope you enjoyed today's show. And that is my fridge. With that, I will, <laughs> I will leave you to it. Have a lovely one and see you on the next one. Bye.